It's a rough world out there. And with all the pressures put on our children, how can we be sure that they will be Muslim? Welcome to Double Take, a podcast by Yaqeen Institute where we look into ideas and questions in Islam that give us pause. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mohammed Zaud, and today on the show, Dr. Uthman Umarji, author of the paper, Will My Children Be Muslim? Dr. Uthman, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to Double Take. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. for having me. It's an honor to be here today. Honestly, the honor's out because you're going to teach me a lot, inshallah, today. Um, Dr. Uthman, uh, you've got a PhD in educational psychology, um, and you also studied at uh, Al-Azhar University in Cairo. You practice as an imam, and you're a director at Yaqeen Institute. Uh, it's really early in the morning here in Sydney, so I'm going to start off with a very basic, simple question, if that's okay. I'm going to pose a scenario, and hopefully you can answer. Is that okay? Of course. <laughs> okay, so here's the scenario. My daughter is born, alhamdulillah, and uh, I read the adhan, uh, I recite the adhan in her ear, um, and I read Quran to her as she's growing up. We play Surat al-Baqarah every single night. Um, I pray in front of her, I teach her how to pray, I send her to Quran school, um, and then um, in her teens she kind of rebels a little bit, and then in her late teens she tells me she's she's really not interested in Islam or practicing Islam, and she just turns away completely. So as a softball question to start off with, where did I go wrong? I'm just joking. I want to answer that question hopefully this episode. <laughs> like softball? <laughs> That's a knuckleball. <laughs> so I'll um, hopefully get some clarity on on a scenario like that um, throughout this episode. But no, literally to, to kick off, we'll say, how did you get interested in the topic and what led you to, to covering this topic of whether or not a child will become Muslim when they grow up? Yeah, to be very honest, this is the question that I wanted to answer. This is why I work with Yaqeen. I joined Yaqeen under the premise of trying to answer these questions because we all deal with these as parents, as community members. But the initial motivation for this entire topic came from my work as an imam almost a decade ago. And I was just incredibly fascinated and simultaneously perplexed by the types of interactions I would have with Muslim parents and their kids. So a couple of anecdotes that might just kind of situate this. One day, I remember I was sitting in my office, it was a few weeks before Ramadan, and a mom walks in with her about 18, 19 year old uh, son, He's an undergrad and the mom is very distressed and says, okay, you know, tell, tell, tell the sheikh what happened. Tell him what's going on. And so the son, he looks at me and he says, you know what, man, I just, I don't want to fast this Ramadan. So I said, okay, like what's, what's going on? He's like, yeah, you know, I fast since I was like, you know, my whole life, you know, everyone around me fast, you know, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my friends, everyone in the community. But you know what? Just fasting doesn't do anything to people. These people fast every single year. And then right after Ramadan, they're the exact same person. And I looked mm -hmm. at him and I kind of processed it. And I said, you know what, you're, that's actually a very intelligent answer. Like, I think you're, you're onto something in some ways. So the mom, she looked at me like very confused. Like, what are you doing trying to tell my son not to fast? So I told him, I says, look, I said, just because people don't benefit from their fasting doesn't mean the fasting itself is not beneficial. And I, we, you know, we talked for a while about the same thing. If you go to the gym and you don't lift weights properly, you're not going to get fit. Right. If you um, go to school, but you don't study properly, you're not going to learn. 
And I said mm. that even the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi told us that some people will get nothing but hunger and thirst out of their fasting if they don't do it properly. Alhamdulillah, he decided that he would go back to fasting and, and didn't kind of throw, throw it out the window because he didn't see people benefiting. But again, that, oh. that, that interaction shows me something about how adolescents are grappling with this issue of their faith. And even if they practice their whole life, that what role does it play in their life and how central is it to them? Another story, uh, I had this kid who used to come to Sunday school, Sunday school, sorry, youth group. On a weekly basis, he would come to uh, our weekly basketball game. Kind of fun fact, when I was an imam, uh, we used to have this thing where every Mondays the youth would come and they'd play basketball against us. And it was me and the old people versus these high school kids. Alhamdulillah, we never lost to them. So it was a really big deal in the community to always come on Mondays to try and beat the imam and his uh, uncle friends. But anyway, so this kid shows up and his mom is also distressed. And he's like, look, uh, Sheikh, I don't, I don't think I believe in God anymore. So what do you, I said, what's going on? He's like, yeah, my friends showed me these YouTube videos, uh, you know, some of my high school friends, and it shows that, you know, God is not real. So he literally spoke for five minutes, deconstructed some of those things, and he stops and he's like, you know what? Yeah, those were not really good arguments probably to begin with. He's like, yeah, I, I still believe in God. And I was again, just like, man, like so in five minutes, just that five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, this kid was fine. He goes to school, hangs out, hears some weird things, watches a YouTube video. He's about to leave Islam. And then like five minutes of basic back and forth, he's back to Islam. So it's how sensitive, you know, the topic of identity is. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what led me to this, this lifelong pursuit of studying the topic. So thank you so much for devoting your life to it. To be honest, uh, it's such an important um, part of our lives. And, you know, I can just imagine, you know, that woman coming to the basketball court uh, and bringing her son and just thinking, oh, my God, after all of that effort, um, and all of my focus on Islam and, and, and teaching my child Islam, that they decide, you know what, uh, I'm thinking of leaving Islam. I can just imagine the, the distress in that woman. Um, and so your work is absolutely paramount to, to her and, and to me and, and to Muslim parents in general. Um, you spoke about identity. Do you mind just explaining what you mean by, by identity? Because we hear a lot about it and, and you wrote a lot about it extensively in your paper. So identity, and then more specifically, what you mean by religious identity as well? So identity is this very heavy term that has a lot of meanings to different people. But at the core of it, it's all about understanding who we really are. And so for youth and for adolescents, identity is fundamentally about answering questions like, who am I? What is my place in this world? What do I value? Who do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do with my life? So these are really heavy questions that in across someone's life, Adolescence is a time where they try to answer this question. So that age between about you know 10 and 20-ish is when they're really deeply thinking about these topics, about what is, who am I at the core? And so identity formation uh, in the West, especially uh, for religious identities, they have found that adolescence is very, very sensitive because there's so many things happening between what parents are telling them, what their peers are telling them, how they're being socialized in schools, and so it's really and this point of confusion. And, yeah. Sorry. And they're also connected with the rest of the world as well. So it's not just their immediate context that is pulling them, but they're connected with, you know, subcultures in the US or in uh, the UK or Australia or even in other, other parts of remote corners of the world. Yeah, everything is intertwined, especially because of technology today. So I could be living here in Southern California, but I could be heavily influenced by Australian culture. If that's what I'm absorbing mm-hmm. online. 
so you know for me um it wasn't until i was probably 26 27 um when i was handed a book uh, about identity that i actually understood <laughs> how to define my identity like i knew i was muslim um but was i more muslim than i was australian uh, am i more muslim than i was kind of lebanese uh and uh and it was all of this kind of concoction of identities that really confused me, in all honesty. And so I was leaning in, leaning out of identities in, in different circles. But it wasn't until I got a book by, um, written by Amin Ma'louf um, called On Identity. And I've read it like several times. And, and he says something in there that just kind of the penny dropped for me, which was that everyone's identity is like their, their thumb, thumbprint. Um, so you can have multiple identities. There's no such thing as just one identity. Um, and there's there's a whole bunch of identities, and every single person's identity is unique. But I don't know. I just thought I'd say that because it was something. And I I was a practicing Muslim growing up, and I you know my culture really influenced me as well. Um, and I thought you know this would be a simple thing that I could answer, but I really struggled with it up until the age of say 27. You know. Yeah, and that's because as you mentioned, it's it's such a complex topic. We have these personal identities that kind of make us stand out. And then we have these numerous social identities, which we kind of make us belong and fit into kind of a greater narrative. And so youth are literally trying to figure this out. I mean, actually, we all are. Is that how do I simultaneously fit into the world that I'm in? Well, also, I'm not just kind of a pawn. I am actually have some level of uniqueness. And so ultimately, the goal of identity formation is to have this settle as to what really is more salient to you versus kind of, yeah, like I am... I have this ethnic identity, but it does, it's not as prominent, for instance, as my religious identity or some other identity that I, that I wear. So when you talk about identity, so what are the factors that affect, like you mentioned subcultures around the world, you mentioned um, you know, our families, our friends, our school. What are the kind of things that, that influence someone's identity and help shape it through the years? Yeah. Um, well, before I answer that, I want to go back to your last question. I don't think I finished speaking about well, re- what is religious identity? Yeah, sure. And because ethnic identities or certain other identities, uh, they might manifest themselves differently than a religious identity. And so just to be clear, from a religious identity, we're speaking about, at least in this paper that I wrote, three different kind of dimensions. One mm-hmm. is that, what do I deeply believe in? What are the, my deepest convictions? What are my deepest values? And the second dimension is, well, then what do I do with those convictions and values? What does my day-to-day practice look like? And the third thing, which is, very important in, 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 in Eastern cultures more so, but also in the West, is who do I do these things with? So who do I believe these things with and who do I practice with? So in other words, what community am I a part of? And these three kind of collectively build a religious identity, which is why you notice every religion has some communal aspect around it, right? There's either, uh, you know, these holidays that you celebrate or there's a religious space that you attend together and there's a shared notion that we do things as a group rather than just as autonomous beings. So for the context of your work, to be identified as a Muslim, I have to deeply believe in Islam and the values of Islam. I'm practicing the rules and you know the, the rituals of Islam. And then I'm practicing that with Muslims, basically. And that kind of helps define me as a practicing Muslim. Yeah, that would be on the higher end of, identif- of identification. So like any identity, it can be either very strong within you and very salient, or it could be very weak. Sure. Okay. So, so how is that shaped over the years then? What are the factors that play a role in shaping whether or not I identify with a group or a set of values? 
Yeah, so this is the term that um, we use the word socialization to describe the process by which any individual absorbs the beliefs, the values, the practices, and the traditions which they're ultimately going to enact in life. And so I like to think of this, uh, this kind of analogy or uh, heuristic of thinking about that we live in these nested environments. So a child is raised in a home with parents and siblings, and that home is in a neighborhood that's got peers, it's got neighbors, it's got the school which mm-hmm. they go to, it's got libraries, it's got the masjid. That neighborhood is in a city. That city has a certain culture to it, has certain norms, that's in a state that has its own norms, that's in some sort of a national climate. So these are all the different types of socializers that are out there. It could be individuals or it can be institutions. And each of them, with every interaction with the child, will leave some effect. So if it's frequent, then it can have a larger effect. If it's infrequent, it's going to have less of an effect, which is why school is so powerful, because it's something which we spend so much of our life in. So, you know, five days a week for, you know, how many years of your life, you know, 18 years of your life, you're getting that reinforcement of what values the school is, tr- is transmitting to you. I'll get to the point about, you know, the role of parents in, in a few moments. But so when you're talking about all of those layers um, that affect someone's identity, it just kind of rings alarms bells that I have to learn all of that because the context that my daughter is raised in is probably a little bit different to the one that I was raised in. So I have to learn all those layers and all those um, facets that affect her her uh, identity. So it seems like a daunting task, and, and we'll talk about um, how I can play more of an active role in my daughter's life in a few moments. But um, this concept of dual identities that you talk about, um, that someone can have a Muslim identity and then something else, can you talk to that in light of what you just said, which is that you know everyone has a unique identity that has multiple dimensions? Yeah, So if you think about any individual, they're going to organize these identities within themselves. So we all have some racial and ethnic identity. We all have some type of a gender identity about how much masculinity or say femininity matters to you or you enact in your life. We have uh, social class identities about whether we're from the elite and wealthy or the middle class or from the poor. We have our different cultural identities. We have our family identities. We have our religious identity and so many more. So what ends up happening is that all of these organize within the individual's mindset in a certain fashion. I, I like to use this word hierarchically. So it's organized from kind of most important to least important. But also what makes this tricky is that certain identities turn on or off depending on the climate that you're in or the environment you're in. So to give an example, imagine that you're, uh, if there's a woman, right, a sister, and she walks into a space where there's a say like a hundred men and she's the only woman in that room, all of a sudden, her gender identity might become far more salient because she stands out at that moment. Now, that's one way you can enact an identity or that it becomes salient. Another way is actually to be with people who share your identity. So if I walk into the masjid, all of a sudden my Islamic identity becomes very, very salient because everyone is doing Islamic things. Everyone kind of understands what's kind of the shared norms here, which as if you flip it, you'd say when I walk to school, is my Islamic identity going to be the most salient? Probably not. It might be my student identity. So the issue of dual identities, what we're trying to get at at this notion is that there are things, and dual is probably not the right right word, it's going to be just multiple, but what is the true self that one has? What is the ideal identity that one is hoping to enact in life? And I think with your question, what um, I'm getting at is this duality that people often have. As the Prophet Muhammad even spoke about it in a hadith, he said that, you know, the worst of people is the one who's two-faced. 
right? You know, he kind of has one, one way of being with one group of people and then kind of another way of being with another group of people. And I think what this is getting at is that, uh, you'll find oftentimes that you might have a child and that child will walk into a space with mom and dad, aunt and uncle mm. at the masjid. And, you know, they'll say, you know, MashaAllah, this kid is such a good kid. He's so righteous. He's so innocent. And he always does the right thing. He says the right words. But then when that kid is with his friends, he's a completely different person. The entire Islamic identity has been removed, right? And, and he is enacting something totally different. And we have to wonder, why is that happening? Why is the Islamic identity so much lower in the kid's hierarchy? Why is it where he's willing to dump this to really show his true self? And what are we doing to socialize a kid that he has chosen identity A over the Islamic identity? And that's really the crux of what I, I, I think we need to understand. I also struggled with this, um, not just as a, as a kid, but in my early 20s. Um, if, you, if you don't mind me sharing this story, um, I was working at McDonald's in the, in the head office as a, as a brand manager. And um, I uh, used to give khutbah at the same time. Um, so every Friday I would take off two hours with my environment in the corporate world um, and I'd drive to the closest place to give khutbah because there no, there's no one to give khutbah. Um, and I would be wearing in my, you know, just normal kind of corporate wear. Um, but as I'm driving to the place to give khutbah, I'm, um, uh, and it's just a small hall in, in some community hall in, in like Whoop Whoop, uh, Every every single traffic light, I was practicing my uh, khutbah because I didn't like to read it. Um, I was changing my clothes in the car. Um, I'd roll up my my jeans, make sure that the um, the thobe was on. I'd get there and talk about you know heaven and hell and whatnot. And then you know a few minutes later, I'm back in the corporate world. And honestly, I felt for for months that I was two people, like two people in two complete different groups. And that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, but I guess, you know, when you're talking about, you know, having multiple identities and leaning in and leaning out, um, ultimately you need to ask yourself, who are you? Um, but there is no harm in, as I'm understanding from you, in leaning in and leaning out when you're talking about your own identity. No, no, absolutely not. In fact, it's very adaptive and normal to do that. And that's how all human beings are in. And you think about when you're with your family, you're wearing your father identity probably first and foremost or your husband identity and you're not acting like the branding manager at McDonald's with your kids and your wife. At least I hope you're not. Right? And that's so you don't want to be like, hey, this is who I am and I'm going to be this person all the time no matter what. But what you, we want to be clear about is that in this kind of global hierarchy that your Islamic identity is secure enough that it will manifest itself appropriately even when you're at work with your coworkers. So it's not like it gets dumped. But I'm going to make sure that I don't do anything that's un-Islamic. I'm going to make sure that I still practice my faith in a certain fashion. And so that's what we hope and a, a strong Islamic identity does, is that it manifests itself appropriately no matter where we are, whether it's school, work, with friends, it, it, with family, right? It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to drop down to the point of being non-existent. So, so then in that case, Dr. Uthman, what if my, my daughter comes to me and she's in her early 20s um, and she kind of identifies as Muslim. She's not practicing at all, but she's kind of like culturally Muslim. Um, and she's, you know, she celebrates Eid with us, but she doesn't really do anything else. And in kind of the corporate world, she's, she's a completely different person than the one I know um, at home. Uh, 
can you talk to that that concept of being culturally Muslim? Is that you know does that fit in this concept of being you know religiously Muslim? So if we take our definition again, that it's what you believe and your deepest values, kind of what you do and and kind of who you do this with. For someone who's simply a cultural Muslim who shows up on Eid, um, who will you know twenty seventh of Ramadan, you know they'll do the bare minimum that fulfills their desire to enact that identity. But we know that it's not a complete manifestation. Then we would say that person has a very weak Islamic identity, and it's the very bottom of the hierarchy. And what we find is that when that occurs, the benefits of Islam will not be realized by that person in this life. So when we talk about all the things that spirituality gets you, and when we get about all the things that, and I don't mean this from like a very self-serving sense, but even from the perspective of like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, He expects certain things out of us. And if you are not fulfilling those things, because that is not the extent by which you're fulfilling this identity then one should not be surprised if all the fruits of religiosity in terms of like contentment in this life, in terms of, uh, in terms, I don't want to say the word happiness, that's not the right term to use, but just, um, you know, being able to, to grapple and cope with whatever may hit you. Uh, that will not be the buffer because you have not enacted that identity to its fullest. So I wouldn't, those people are still Muslim and human beings exist on a spectrum of being very practicing to not so practicing, but we want to convey to people that that doesn't, that doesn't actually bear the fruits of Islam to enact an identity in such a weak fashion. So, um, Dr. Uthman, like I, for the rest of the interview, I'd like to pose a scenario, the same scenario I had earlier, which is my daughter, kind of me trying to influence her religiosity or, you know, her religious identity growing up and taking her to Sunday school and whatnot. Um, can you just go with me on this journey for the next few moments? Um, She's born, and we believe as Muslims that the Prophet ﷺ said that everyone's born uh, with the fitrah, um, and it's it's their parents who pull them to, you know, Christianity or Judaism or whatever. Um, so, so that concept of fitrah, do you mind explaining that? And then, what what do I do as a parent <laughs> uh, in the early years uh, to make sure that I'm not intention or unintentionally negatively influencing my my daughter's identity, religious identity, because I'm trying to do the basics. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot to speak that you're talking about from childhood on. But I mean, the first thing to just reiterate is that, yes, there are all these socializers in our children's lives. There's friends, there's, there's, there's schools, there's neighborhoods, there's TV. But at the end of the day, the overwhelming empirical evidence and religious guidance tells us that no, no one other than the parents have such an impact on the kid's religious identity and development. They are, without a doubt, the most important lever in the religious life of a kid. So now we say, well, what do parents do? What should they be doing? Uh, one of the most common things that's found in the literature on socialization is that people do things or they internalize behaviors and beliefs based on the frequency of the interactions and the connection they have with the person who's socializing them. So for a parent, I would say the very first thing is to practice what you preach. This is like should just be almost like all over your, you know, sure. and everywhere you can just like put that somewhere like as a, as a reminder that a child will pick up on hypocrisy in the most subtle of ways. And so if we want our kids to be religious, we ourselves need to be religious. If we want our kids to pray, we ourselves need to pray. And if a child witnesses the incongruence between what a parent says, what a parent does, then they're going to say, well, you know, this is, this, this, this is not that important, right? If my, my, my mom and dad don't do it. The second thing that is extremely important is to have this warm, loving relationship with your kid. Because all the literature finds, 
And the prophetic guidance as well that we find is that that quality of the relationship between a parent and child establishes the bond of whether a child ever wants to follow what their parents tell them. So you told me in your beginning, you know, you, you talked about, let's say that you recite the Adhan and you, you know, you um, read Surah Baqarah to them all the time. They're listening to it. But if you're, if you're just passively doing this to them, right, go listen to this, you know, go and pray, drop you up at Sunday school. And there's no warmth in this relationship. If there's no uh, love and affection in this relationship, then the child is not likely to want to imitate what they even see mom and dad doing, even if the mom and dad are praying, even if mom and dad are going to the what, masjid. What is warmth? Sorry, like what does warmth look like? Like because uh, I'm I'm putting effort into my kids, you know, religiosity, yeah. and I'm dropping them off, and for yeah. me that's warmth. Uh, you know, taking them to Sunday school to learn, <laughs> that's warmth. Like what's warmth in your mind? Yeah, warmth is having authentic, genuine interactions, and I'd say mostly. It's, it's between parent and child. So a child doesn't perceive it as warm to drop them off somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying don't drop them off for Sunday school, but yeah, what we're speaking about is that do I have an enjoyable day-to-day interaction with my kid? Leave religion aside just in general and then with religious activities. So does mama and baba tell me bedtime stories about the prophets? That's a warm interaction, which is very different mm. than saying, you know what? Here's the Kindle. Here's the iPad. It's going to read to you the story. And you feel like, you know, I did my job. So outsourcing religious identity development or religious socialization mm-hmm. is not going to work. So do I read Quran with my kid? And am I warm with them? Or do I pull their ear when they make a mistake with their tajweed? Right? That's cold. So it's what we're really trying to get at is I, I use this term affective experiences that, you know, at the end of the day, kids are going to forget the particulars of what we did with them. But they're going to remember a memory about, you know, when I did things with my mom and dad, when we went to the masjid, when we read Quran, when we would do something religious. Ember it being an enjoyable activity. Ember it being something which, you know, we were we were both having fun with together. And, and that's what I mean by warm. So, okay, is there a way other than kind of the, the hypocrisy you mentioned, like, you know, I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. Um, am I doing anything unintentionally that kind of uh, deters them away from, from Islam when they grow up? Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing that I find is um, when parents subtly send signals to their kids that the Islamic identity is not the most important thing in life. And the way we do this, no parent would ever say, you know what, son, daughter, Islam doesn't matter. Mm. But our words, you know, that, you know, our, our actions speak louder than any of our words. And so it's these subtle cues that we send to children, which they pick up on to say, you know what, religion is not that important. I'll give some examples. What I typically find is that most parents are very keen to have their kids, let's say, in Sunday school or some early childhood religious education, elementary school. And then their kids get a little bit older, kind of maybe teenagers, and the parents pull their kids out of everything and they say, this is time for academics now. I need you to get the best grades, get into the best college, you can have the best jobs, you can make the most amount of money. Now, what's really ironic about this is that that time period of adolescence is exactly when the kid needs religious socialization and they've been pulled out of it. But they've also picked up on mom and dad don't think Islam is that important, but it's math and science and engineering and all the other subjects that matter to me a whole lot. That's one example. Another example is when they see, for instance, when a parent, uh, and we all do that as parents, we want our kids to succeed in school. So we might want our, we might get very upset and angry that if a kid comes home with like a C or the kid comes home with like a bad grade or doesn't do their homework. Mm. But if the kid doesn't do his Islamic studies homework, if he doesn't read Quran that day, if he misses a prayer, it doesn't get up for pleasure, it's like not a big deal. So they can sense that where do mom and dad get angry? 
they get angry with the things that, I mean, we usually get mad at things that matter to us. At least we should, we should, right? That's kind of adaptive human behavior. And they're saying, well, mom and dad are getting mad at what matters to them, which is school and education. They're not getting mad when I don't do Islam. So Islam must not be that important. And, and so, and the last thing I'll mention, and this is something very explicit, is that parents will then actively tell their kids, like, don't get involved in like the youth group or MSAs in high school or in college because you need to be laser focused on becoming a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer or something else. So all these subtle things they're doing, sometimes not so subtle, the kid internalizes that religious identity is much lower in my parents' needs or their preferences and they're going to absorb that. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when they hit college and they hit these older ages and they get confused. We say, well, where were we you know, socializing them when they had all these questions on their mind? Fair enough. Um, so like... Yeah, I can see. I can see how that makes sense. It certainly makes sense to me in a very controlled environment, like in in home. I can build that really warm um, relationship with my daughter. I can read bedtime stories about the prophets. Point taken in the car when I'm driving to Sunday school. Point taken. But what if um, you know when we're when we're faced with kind of mainstream challenges? You know, the the shows we're watching or their friends at school who are pulling them in in really kind of opposite directions um, to that kind of warm and cozy uh, feeling that I I was able to to build at home. Um, What can I do when when I'm facing those challenges? Because sometimes the wave against me is bigger than than what I can handle as a parent. So how can I I face that? Yeah, that's a a big daunting question. well, there's a couple of things that I think that the research points to and that kind of uh, common sense experience might also um, give us some insight into. So the first is that parents have to recognize that they don't raise their kids in a vacuum. And just that awareness that, look, it's not mom and dad who are going to raise this kid, but we have to have community around us. And that community will help reinforce some of these values so that it becomes easier for these kids to enact it. So even when they're outside of your space, they're outside of the home, if they're uh, you know, with friends, right? If they're out in the neighborhood, if they're in spaces, but those spaces are wholesome spaces, if there's spaces where I feel comfortable with the religious values that are being transmitted there, that's a step in the right direction. But that can always be the case, right? I mean, we live in the West. Many of us are in public schools. So I would say in this situation, what's super important, it still goes back to warm parenting, is that do I keep a line of communication open with my kids so that no matter what they're going through, they're comfortable speaking to me about it. And I'm also in touch with what they're going through so I can bring it up proactively. So for instance, I know, for instance, that kids who are in middle school and high school and now are getting into the age of thinking about uh, you know, intimate relationships, they're starting to think about mm. or be exposed to drug and alcohol. And so do I as a parent proactively even bring these conversations up? Or do I create a climate so that my child, if it comes up in their life, they can come back to us and say, you know what, mom, I don't, I don't understand why I can't do this. You know, I really want to do X or Y, and I don't understand why. If they can't ask that question, then we're suppressing the ability for their identity to develop. And those are natural questions, especially in a Western culture where, let's say, boys and girls hanging out together is the norm. It's on every Muslim kid's mind is why can't I hang out with other boys and girls? And if they just have to stifle that, then it won't be surprising when they actually just have that dual identity we spoke about previously, which is to shed the Islamic identity right when it's not advantageous. And honestly, I can um, just just to your point of, you know, making sure that we build that warm and and cozy relationship. I guess it becomes exponentially more difficult um, to face those challenges together when we've outsourced 
um, you know, the religious teachings, um, like for, for them to go to Sunday school, which is good. But, you know, if we've completely outsourced religion <laughs> to institutions uh, outside of the home, then I'm assuming that it's just so much harder to, to tackle those challenges face on. Yeah, and, and it goes again back to this issue of role modeling, is that when you outsource things, you have to think about the dosage that someone's going to get. If they go once a week to Sunday school and they're getting a one-hour interaction with the teacher and they're one kid in a class of 30, the time to develop that warm, loving relationship is not there. So even if parents, they should outsource some of it while simultaneously building their own relationships, but it has to be in a meaningful sense. So is there a relationship with a mentor they can develop? Someone who they see regularly, especially in the teenage years, I think this is absolutely essential that this person, so let's, the example of school, if they're going to be good at mathematics, they're getting five days a week, Monday through Friday, they're going to math class, right? Say middle school and high school. So they can grapple with all the challenges of mathematics or of English literature or anything else. Are they getting that same Islamic exposure where on a daily basis, they can build a relationship with somebody. And if it's not daily, even if it's a couple times a week or even once a week, but it's one or two people, a youth group director, an imam, right? Some other, you know, youth that's older and maybe a good role model that we just have them consistently with our kids because it's true. As our kids get older, they're going to be less inclined to hanging out with mom and dad all the time. And they're going to want to be with peers. Yeah. So if we can at least say, fine, we want you to be with peers, but we want there to be like a good role model in your peer circle. And that's going to have a massive influence on them internalizing these values. And if there is no good role model, um, then hopefully they've, they're comfortable enough in their skin that we've been able to develop over you know 15 years or so um, that they're comfortable to, to be Muslim in that circle. Um, they're comfortable to pray in public if they need to or to kind of uh, steer away from certain you know foods or ideas or kind of influences, right? Yeah, and, you, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. This idea of teaching our youth to be comfortable in their skin, it goes back to the core of identity we spoke about. We want to teach our youth that you've got to fit in kind of globally into the society, right? You don't want to stick out in every single way. You don't have to look completely different, act completely different, speak a different language. You can fit in while still being unique. And how you're unique is through your religious identity. And so mm -hmm. how do you do that? You have to walk them through that day by day. So I go to the park with my kids multiple times a week, right? We go shopping on the weekend. And when Salah comes in, am I okay? And, and modeling for my kids, I can get up and pray in public. I can pray at the beach. I can pray at the park. I can pray in the mall. And if the kid sees that, they're again internalizing, oh, I can actually enact my religiosity in a way that's unique and that not everyone else is sharing with me. Hmm. Now, one important point here, though, is that this can't, this is a, a delicate act because our children, the ability to constantly be different and constantly stand out can wear on someone. It can be emotionally exhausting. It can be psychologically taxing. So what we want to ensure is that while they have the ability to be unique when they need to be unique, like I, I see someone of the opposite gender, you know, I don't, I don't give you a hug, right? I don't shake your hand, right? I've got my uniqueness in this, right? But at the same time, if they're hanging out with friends, and they always have to be different 24 hours a day. Eventually, it's going to wear on them. So what do we do? We try to minimize the need to be extra unique. So if you're going to go hang out on a Friday night with friends and you go to, and you go to, the, and you go to the movies as an example, or you go, you know, to a friend's house, if you're with all non-Muslims and Maghrib comes in, how difficult is it to get up and say, you know what, friends, you guys are in the middle of doing something. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go pray. 
it's tough. We're not saying it's impossible. But to do that over and over and over is very tiring. So if we say, look, you've got Muslim friend circles as well. So when you're with the Muslim friends, it's probably a whole lot easier to enact that part of your of your practice because we haven't forced them to kind of have that self-control to regulate. So I think thinking about not overburdening them with environments that make them have to stand out is is an important part of of, of how we socialize them. Fair enough. So if I was to summarize, uh, Dr. Uthman, um, you you mentioned really early on that the role of parents, you know, uh, are probably the most important piece of the puzzle when it comes to shaping a child's identity. Um, Other things play a role, like friends, like, you know, society, like national identity and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's the parents who play that biggest role and have um, the biggest lever with regards to a kid's identity. I, I get that. Um, and if I was to summarize and, and um, re- regurgitate to you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the concept of warm parenting is important. So building that really robust, warm relationship with the child, whether that's kind of reading a storybook at night, um, you know, having really enjoyable connections with, with the child, um, that helps us kind of shape and build and also builds that sense of security with the child um, so that they can then, um, you know, when they're faced with challenges, can reach out to us. Um, we uh, we need to prioritize religion, uh, both explicitly and implicitly uh, in in our relationship with our kids. So when we, we send them to Sunday school um, in their early years and then, you know, flick a switch and then get them to focus on just secular studies and and ignore their religious studies growing up, then that gives that subtle message um, that, you know, right now secular studies is more important or that religion plays a a second kind of second tier role. So it's that prioritization and the consistent and, you know, equal prioritization. Um, It's the idea of hypocrisy. Um, So making sure that I practice what I preach and to also be uh, in touch with what my daughter's facing growing up. So uh, understanding the challenges she's facing in school, in her social circles, as much as I can, of course, um, you know, different cultures, different subcultures is going to be difficult, but, you know, trying to be in touch so that I can understand what she's going through. And then, of course, not to outsource um, religion uh, completely. Obviously, you know, send them to Sunday school and whatnot, but playing a, a very, uh, you know, bringing that kind of religious institution to the home as well uh, and taking responsibility for it. Have I summarized that correctly? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think the only thing I would add is to say that parents, essentially, it's not just their direct effect, but they're the ones who are also selecting all these other environments. So I don't want to overburden the parents to say, you've got to do everything. But even the selection of who your kids hang out with, what spaces that they're going to be in, that is a important, that, that is a parent's responsibility. If they then make the right choice of where to put their kids, they can at least sit back and say, at least, alhamdulillah, when they're not in my presence, they're in a place that I know they're going to get some good, uh, you know, they're going to, they're, the values they're going to get there are going to be wholesome. Um, now, fair enough. And I guess at the end of the day as well, like I do what I can, but Hidayah comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I think we, we believe that completely. But uh, of course, our job is to do what we can. So I have a final question, Dr. Uthman. Um, uh, imagine you're playing basketball again, um, if you don't mind. And I, I bring my, say, nine-year-old daughter or my nine-year-old niece uh, to the basketball court and she has a question for you. Um, you pause the game and, and she asks, Dr. Othman, how do I protect my Muslim identity 
in this world? What is your answer in, say, 30 seconds or less? Okay. First, mashallah, for a nine-year-old to think about that, that's impressive, <laughs> right? Kudos to you for raising such a wonderful daughter. Allah bless her. She wasn't bribed or anything, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no extrinsic rewards. That's another topic for another day. Um, I would tell a nine-year-old, just the same thing I tell any teenager, friends, 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 friends. Prophet Muhammad said that the person is going to follow the lifestyle and faith of their friends, their closest intimate friends. Be mindful of who you take as your closest friend. Find the best peer group, find righteous people, and you will find yourself in a safe spot, inshallah. Zakallah khair, Dr. Uthman. Um, your paper is, is currently live on Yaqeen Institute's website, Will My Children Be Muslim? It's a pleasure to have you, to be honest, as a director of Yaqeen Institute and to have you on Double Take. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, for those who are interested uh, in Dr. Uthman's work, you can visit uh, yaqeeninstitute.org. Jazakallah khair and barakallah fiqh. Jazakallah khair for having me. It was really a pleasure to be here today with you.